back. Pulls up for three. Boom! Knocks it down. Curry from the corner at three. Puts it in. For overtime. Makes it. Garrett. Welcome from me, Mark Woods, to the MVP cast. We're brought to you in association with Total Environmental Compliance. Check them out at tecompliance.co.uk. Our guest in this edition is another of the true legends of basketball in the UK. He was part of the Tartan Army of Braveheart to put Scottish basketball on the map back in the 1980s. A member of the legendary Murray International team, a GB International, and the proud father of one of this country's finest exports to the NBA. Bobby Archibald, welcome to the MVP cast. Good afternoon, Mark. It's good to be with you. Uh, Oldenburg was on the show recently, one of your former teammates, and he said you were yeah. the toughest guy, and I think he also might have added the word meanest guy, that he ever played <laughs> from on the court. Where did that come from for you? Um, right from when I started playing myself, um, I wasn't the fastest, I wasn't the strongest, but I was pretty darn sure I was going to be as hard and as passionate as I could be. And that's uh, that's what drove me. Uh, coming up against better players, having to work harder than they did to get to the same level. Um, so that's really what spurred a lot of things I did in my career. Um, even when I started, um, it was a guy called Crawford Fairbrother, actually. He used to be the high jump champion, uh, the Scottish high jump champion. Uh, met me at an old former pupils meeting where they had started to play pickup games. And he invited me to go along and meet the guys at Penalty. And it all kind of started from there with uh, Willie Cameron and uh, David Wilson, Ali Drysdale, Al McDonald, all that crowd. And uh, played with them until 78, until there started to be a bit of movement within the, the sponsorship areas. And that's when I, I headed to Edinburgh. I played a year with Dalkeith Saints and then joined Moray International at that time. Did it feel an exciting time to be a part of basketball? Because when you speak to yourself and other players of that era, it was that moment where suddenly basketball went from a, a sort of fringe, quirky, American imported sport to something that was almost native and had players coming through the ranks together and building something significant. I think I think the, it really started, and I missed the start of it because I lived in the West Coast where it wasn't quite so popular as it was in the East Coast. There was a big divide between the, the West Coast and, and the East Coast when it came to that. And uh, I didn't appreciate the dominance that Muir had with a bunch of guys who started in their former pupils club. So that, that there was always a drive and a pride about our game as it developed. Um when the money and the full timers came into it, that was somewhat different. Um, but for it's the old Scottish athlete mentality: I'll give you everything I've got, and I'll be happy to do it. With that Murray International setup, when you came into it, did it feel like there was something huge that was on the works? Because that team dominated between Edinburgh and Livingston. It dominated Scottish basketball when there was yeah. an independent Scottish league and in right from the late 70s through the late 80s and went obviously into the BBL and won titles. But mm-hmm. did it feel like you guys had a little nucleus of something that could do big things or was it was it organic or was it something that uh, yeah. came about? Yeah, there was, there was a great camaraderie for a team that was stitched together. Um, and, you know, David Murray himself put a lot of effort into 
uh, pulling it together. Um, he had a lot of uh, pride in putting out the best he always could in, in business as well. And he kind of drifted that down towards us. And we got together some of the, you know, some of them are the funniest, the, the most hilarious, but they're all very proud of each other. And sometimes you didn't know whether to laugh or cry with them. But work hard? Oh, yeah. We would work hard. And play hard, presumably. Yes. I mean, again, you, you leave it on the court every day. Um, if you come off and you feel that I could have done a little bit better, you didn't do what you set out to do. And I think that was my particular focus. And you know, I, had a, I had a laugh with, uh, oh my gosh, one of Paul's ex-teammates, and his name slips me just now, but he said he had to get one at Martin Henlon to look after him every time he stepped on the court because he was scared of me. <laughs> now that, that, that's a win right away. <laughs> How did you go about, I mean, today, obviously, we know so much about sports science and training and all the methodologies of coaching, et cetera. But how did you, mm. in that period, go about getting better? Because you know, watching game film and all the video stuff that we have now that players take for granted wasn't around, what was the key then to improvement? Uh, it started to go, I mean, rugby historically was a strength game. But ours, ours went to speed and finesse. So it was a lot of short, sharp work. Um, one, one of the coaches actually uh, tried to uh, introduce us to plyometrics. <laughs> and he, he actually brought in a ballet coach to give us movement exercises. And I remember specifically Mike Robinson, who was about 6'9", 280, trying to do demi-plies. It was the most hilarious thing I'd ever seen in my life. <laughs> and yet these days that would seem as, you know, as perfectly normal. Mm -hmm. Oh, we, we used to do things like uh, pyramid shuttle runs. You know, you do one suicide, or bad phrase, one killer drill, which is each free throw line, halfway line, and full court sprint. And it would take about 25 to 30 seconds so you would do one and then rest. You would then do two and rest, three and rest, four and rest. So it was all trying to do quick sprints and, and develop your sprint speed, uh, develop jumping, um, and not so much lifting 400 pounds. So there was a, a definite change in perspective as to what was important to play the game well. I mean, you had a wonderful Scottish nucleus that team and Graham Hill, Steve Hoffman, Ian McLean, of course, mm. came in as well. But also those great Americans, Alton, Bobby Kinzer. How much did you guys learn off these transatlantic imports who would arrive with, you know, there to be a little bit of razzle dazzle, but also had very different backgrounds and skill sets? Mm, yeah. Um, it, it, it was actually it was awesome sometimes just to see some of the things that they could do with a ball that you never even thought about doing. You'd never seen it, so it was spectacular. I mean, we all know that Alt Bird was the best point guard to ever hit our shores, but he, did, he was a special one. But when you saw him work, when he was training, he would do the little things extremely well. And then when he did something that's, you know, really was spectacular because he started at such a high level. Is there any part of you that thinks, I mean, 
we looked at what Robert, your son, did when he went to the States and obviously college, mm. etc. Was there was there any kind of opportunity? I mean, was the, was the door open to people that couldn't remember that year and are you know, too young to even be born then? You know, was there ever a chance for you to sort of go, I could go to uh, America, do something like that, learn my trade in a different way? Or was that just not a thing at that point? Uh, well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. When I was at Paisley, there was a, a touring team came over. I was uh, 18 and I had just met Heather. And uh, we played against the University of Wisconsin at Parkside in a, a friendly match. Well, in those days, you all took a player home, put them up for the night and, and sent them on their merry way. Well, I get talking to a couple of the guys and their coach was uh, very interested in me. And at that time, uh, Peter Dunkley was kicking around the scene and he, he and I got in touch with a coach, um, and I believe his name was Moose Wilson. <laughs> um, and he started to talk about coming over for a scholarship. Um, and us being little small Scottish folk, we thought, here, it's not far from Chicago. My wife's company that she worked for, Steiners of London, had a place in Chicago. So she could work in Chicago and I could go to school up there and do an, engine, an engineering degree. I had spoken to my my boss, because I left school at the end of fifth year and went straight to work as a trainee, uh, metallurgist. And uh, it was all sort of falling into place. And then suddenly when we looked at it, Milwaukee's about 150 miles <laughs> from <laughs> Chicago. So there was no way I was going to be commuting up and down and she would nip up and down to the work. So that all kind of fell through. But I, I, did, I did seriously consider coming over um, to finish an engineering degree. What was it like to play in the venues you played in, particularly in this country? Because, you know, it wasn't the Superdome arenas of, of the corner. You know, places like Coasters and Falkirk, Meadowbank, compact, brutal places. I mean, it must have been yeah. a real gladiatorial experience to be in, in the midst of that sort of crowd. You know, when it all kicked off in the 80s, um, I can remember that we used to play in front of 10 men and a dog. Uh, all sitting in pine beach, bleachers in the gym, the big, and then they had games halls. Uh, and then when you know th things like uh, Meadowbank opened up to the public the way it did, and uh, to, to basketball in particular, uh, John Edwards at uh, Coasters, it's John Edmonds, I believe. Um, so they suddenly got a, a little bit of buzz going, and bringing in these players at that time who were a level above what the Scottish team was. It started something and the Scots took over. Uh, they, they brought the passion. There was some money behind it to get a crowd of two or 3,000. And the first time we went to, to the old Coasters Arena was quite an eye-opener, what they had been able to do through uh, Bobby Kinzer and his, his colleagues at that time, Stuart Wilson. Um, it, was, it was really exciting to go in there, but you had your pride in your bag with you. And you didn't want to show them that, let, you know, you got intimidated by the crowd. Um, so it was it was really exciting uh, when it kicked off. And through the eighties, it really snowballed. You know, you could get, you could fill Meadowbank as an example. You could fill Coasters, you know, six thousand people in Coasters Arena was unheard of. That just wasn't Scottish basketball as we knew it. I mean, you were a physical player, as Alton said. And that was the era where it was a bit more laissez-faire in terms of 
contact a few scraps on the, on the floor here and there. You know, it was probably mm-hmm. customary from the guy. But there was a great quote. He said, I, I, I didn't mind a fight, but I had a glass jaw. How, how, how <laughs> did you balance the demands of your role against self-preservation? Uh, do you know where the glass jaw came from? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I squared off against John Johnson in one game. And I put, I, he started shouting at me and he, he raised his fists. So I naturally put my fists up and said, OK, come on then. And he was so quick, he hit me on the chin <laughs> before I knew it. And I went straight down. And I thought, hmm, that's the glass jaw. <laughs> and did that change your approach to physicality on the court? Yeah, stay low. <laughs> <laughs> the, I mean, that, the team that, that was put together at Murray, I mean, the, what, it seems extraordinary now because so few British teams have played in European competition and Scottish teams not in recent memory. But you had some incredible European nights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the thing. Having having suddenly got a couple of players, and you know, dual citizens and full time US registered players, suddenly it, it was about developing the sport and the team, the team game. And we had some really good games in Europe, in the European Cup with uh, Murray International, and I've played against some outstanding NBA players. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't know if you know that. Both Robert and I have played against Tony Kukoc. He, I played him when he was in Hugo Plastica, and Robert played with him when he was in uh, Milwaukee. Or played against him in Milwaukee, and it was funny to watch Robert lining up on the free throw line against him. Um, played against Dino Raja. Uh, I played against um, Arvidas Sabonis. And these are folk that Robert come, come across in his NBA career. So it's, it's really quite fitting. Um, that he got the chances that maybe I didn't get, but I didn't really want because I liked being in Scotland. <laughs> I still think Sabonis, you see all the lists of in ESPN at the minute, there's a con- list of all-time great players which I've contributed to. And I still think Sabonis is the great admission from all that because I think people in America just still don't appreciate what a phenomenal yeah. player he was. I think he was about 18. And at that time when I played, it was at Crystal Palace. And uh, I watched this young kid who was tall, solid, nail three-pointer after three-pointer. And it would have been, what are you doing out there? Get inside. It was like what uh, Sam Foggin brought in his day when Sam came over. Sam was, Sam was definitely not a, a centre. He was more of a power forward or shooting forward. And he could, he could uh, throw them in from out there as well. And I think that was a special thing about Sabonis. Uh, that was how his game developed. But he was just so big and strong. He could do. He could play back to the basket if he wanted as well. A lot of your international career was in a Scotland jersey, and mm-hmm. we obviously remember what Scotland, the all enemy clashes were like on the football field, and the ripping up Hamden and Wembley and all that kind of stuff. But the basketball version back in those days was pretty tasty, wasn't it? Um, let's say there was no love lost. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, it was it was the same. It was good, honest Scots versus English. It didn't matter if it was tiddlywinks or rugby or football. Um, there was always going to be a, a tension, we'll say, uh, during the game. And how, 
how did that rivalry stack up at that age? Because obviously there was a few dual nationals coming in, etc. But you know, it was great cores, and a lot of your core played in the same team. You had great mm-hmm. players from down south. I mean, it seemed fairly even from the results that I've seen. Um, yes, I think you know we had we had uh, at Murray International had gone down the road that several of the English teams had come, and for a you know in the average uh, game we really wouldn't have had much of a chance. Uh, to play against these teams, I'll just be honest. But uh, as we started to improve the the playing level uh, from the the national players, and I think that was what the difference was that the like Paul, um, uh, my wife and uh, his wife are, are great friends. I've I've known Pat for years. There was always a, a mutual respect with a homegrown talent that was able to develop their game to be able to play. With uh, with the, the the American college kids that were coming over, um, as I said, also played also played against Mike D'Antoni, who's currently the Houston Rockets coach. He played for Billy Milan. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the the the, the Scottish English thing was really it was good good spirited stuff. Uh, you would never back down, but you, you you wouldn't go over the top too often. You got to play in those 1984 Olympic qualifiers for GB, and you had a couple of tremendous games within that. I mean, obviously that was for the LA Olympics. And what, what was the vibe going into that? Because obviously, for you know, no British team at that point had played in the Olympics since '48. Mm-hmm. Again, it was a host host option. Did, did you guys go into that with any sense that you could pull off the impossible? Uh, Tom Schneeman was one of the best coaches I'd ever worked with. Uh, very detailed in his approach. And you didn't have to, you know, a lot of set offense in those days. You didn't have to know your own place in a drill or in an offensive pattern. You had to know everyone's place because you never knew where the ball was going to end up at any one time because there was a lot more free spirit from people like Alton Bird coming in and point guards that could thread a needle. So you had to know a lot about what was going on. So it actually elevated uh, your awareness of set offences and set defences. So there was a great development of uh, thinking man's game that that was brought in in those uh, those years. Because I had the same in 1980. I was the last cut in the 1980 squad under Norm Sloan. And uh, he tried to do the same thing, but very much more... Uh, Regimented style. Tom, Tom, whilst regimented, let that free play come in occasionally. So that was that was a big change in the game at that time. When you find when you when you were getting towards the end of your career, and there was a sort of late European Championship qualification campaign, and yeah, to an extent, towards the end, was it a case of patching yourself up, sticking ice? Walking out there and trying not to have to, to practice as you know any more than you possibly had to. Yeah, that that, that that's what it came to. Um, I mean, I, I remember I was uh, sharing a hotel room with Ian Gordon, and uh, we just sat and laughed with each other in the afternoon while I was shivering with that ice cold. Um, but yeah, that was that was it. That was when I just said I can't do this anymore, and uh, retired that year. And you were Ian's assistant. And that famous mm-hmm. 1989 playoff, in the early days of the BBL, you know, you, Livingston 
as well as a Murray playing against Glasgow Rangers, their only team in the league. Of course, Kevin Cadle was coaching Glasgow. There's lots of players who knew each other. It swapped sides. Rangers won by three. And it's still seen as one of the absolute epic finals. For I mean, what was the rivalry like? And that one year where you had the two Scottish teams, both with Murray connections, going at it. I mean, it must have felt a phenomenal one to watch. Yeah, there, there was actually some, I'm not going to say ill feeling between certain guys, <laughs> but there was. <laughs> and it became a, I'm going to stuff him, I'm going to screw him. Um, there, there was just verging on hatred. And how did that manifest itself in the game? Was it physical? Was it just competitive? It, it was it was physical, um, but as I said earlier, it, it could verge on the nasty sometimes. Uh, you know, when when you take a rebound now, I'm under the impression that you can't raise your elbows. Well, that was the first thing they taught you to do: get your elbows out and pivot and clear some space. Well, when your elbows are at that height, there's going to be noses in the way, there's going to be eyebrows in the way, and at times that happened. Uh, usually not intentionally, but you weren't. You weren't trying to willfully hurt people, but you were going to let them know that if they came to try and strip the ball off you, there was a price to pay. What was, what was the, for you, I mean, of all those teams and all those competitions you won, what did it feel like was the best team amongst those? Oh, gosh. That, that is it's almost too difficult, but when I played with uh, Tommy Collier, it was, it was a special one. Um, and Sam and Rolton, Alton, Stewie, that, that was a special team. Of the mementos, because you... And, and Seymour, Seymour Hadwin was in that one as well. I mean, of the mementos you've got, because you know, we'll talk about this, you know, obviously live in the States and have done for, for quite some time. But you know, how much of the mementos have you kept with you? And what's, what is the sort of priceless mementos that you... You know, cherish or maybe still, I don't know if they're still around the house. Yeah, I've got a lot of flags and pins. Um, <laughs> I, I, actually, I actually have a, a big blue plastic tote in the uh, garage. And in there, there's a whole bunch of memorabilia that I've got, trophies that we won. Um, and it's actually wrapped up in an old Gardner Webb running bulldog bath towel type thing, a bath mat that we got as one of our first gifts when we toured the United States back in the 70s. So I've got a lot of, a lot of nice memories uh, in there. I found a letter from my sister when she, my sister emigrated to Canada and I uh, found a letter in one of the packets that was, uh, I'd just been selected for the Scottish schools basketball team. And she, she said to me, you should stick in at this because you could be quite good. She's <laughs> good judge of talent. Yeah, I, found, I found that last month, so it was quite quite touching. Uh, she <laughs> she passed several years ago as well. But, uh, you know, just things like that. There's a lot of great memories. Um, the people, especially the people, that's what I probably hold on to more, the characters they had, the, the things they did to keep you entertained. And, um you know, just on the, the old road trips, driving everywhere in buses. Gosh, even going back to the old Camp Hill High School, we had a minibus given to us to to go here and there. Um, so it was, you know, just the things you did. They, they tried to emulate rugby a bit when it came to the old uh, rugby songs, but they never really worked. 
course, no one I, could no one could sing. And of course, I was reading a quote just randomly looking, you know, research. Someone said that you might have been the best lock forward that Scottish rugby never had. Were you, yeah. were you a, a, a burgeoning no, prospect or a lost cause? No, and I, I never actually went to play. Um, <laughs> it was always too because I played soccer when I was young, and then. I tried everything. I played every sport. I just loved playing sports. And it, it was a, probably around the age of 14 or 15, I got a Saturday job uh, at a restaurant where my mum worked. And I couldn't go play football anymore. So I thought, right, I'll just throw it all into basketball. And I focused on that. That was when I was about 15. Um, and never really bothered again. That was it. It was basketball. I gave up volleyball. I gave up all sorts of things that I used to dabble in. But uh, focused on basketball, and you know that became my my passion to to develop myself, and it uh, it turned out okay, I think. But you've worked, you've built a huge career in the, the oil and gas industry, and that's where you're now living in 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 Houston. Yeah, you moved over to the states when when Robert was I think seventeen. It was just I remember yep. seeing him in his last Junior Cup final. And you get moved to Missouri with you know your wife Heather with your 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 daughter Gemma. Yeah, I know that was a career move, obviously. But mm-hmm. was there was there any part of that was to let Robert develop his career as well, or was it just a happy yeah. coincidence? It's funny how it started. Um, at that time, David Murray was interested in selling his business, obviously, and had been there for a number of years. But as Robert had uh, developed his craft in the early days, um, he, he said to us, you know, look, I would really like to go to a high school in the States and uh, see if I could get a scholarship to go. Because the, the summer before, I had brought him and a couple of his friends over to the, the Michigan summer camp uh, with Coach Fisher. And uh, spent a, they spent a week in camp. So... We, we kind of talked, Heather and I talked in detail about it, and we thought, well, let's look at a student exchange option. Because at that time, student exchanges were starting to happen. And we actually got in touch with, a, ended up speaking to a school in Towson in Maryland. And they said, sure, we'd be interested. Um, so the plan was to, you know, we talked about sending Robert out here. He would live with a family here. They would send a family over to us and or a kid over to us and he would live with our family and we would stick it out for a year and see what happened. But at that point, uh, the company that had bought uh, the business from Murray International uh, decided that they were going to start expanding into the United States. Uh, is there, uh, it was a heat treat, an engineering heat treatment business. And uh, someone on their board come up and says, well, look, why don't we... S- pick the labs over there as well and we'll start we'll start growing. So I spoke with my boss at the time and uh, he said, well look, we could we could send you over if you wanted and uh, you could take your family with you and we'll 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 do something out, out there. We've got a business lined up in St. Louis and suddenly the, the student exchange thing laid itself to rest and we we ended up packing up and heading to St. Louis, Missouri. And it turns out that the the high school team there was a centre short of a state championship. And in September, uh, or October 1st, 
97. In walks a 6'10 Scottish guy who looks as if he can play a bit of centre. Um, so they went to the state final that year and lost by one in the, the final. I mean, Robert was a phenomenal prodigy. I remember, you know, he played Scotland under 17 as a 15 year old, the under 23 team when he was just 17. I remember that, that cup final, I think, I'm pretty sure it was at Meadowbank here, you know, where he was absolutely stood head and shoulders above everyone else. And I don't just mean physically, but there's always there's some wonderful photos, and there's many of them of him, you know, at your knee height, wandering around a court. You were playing, you know, he would come on at halftime or practice or whatever. Did you, was it one of those things with him that was just innate, that love of basketball that you he inherited from you? Well, on, honestly, Heather got dragged everywhere. Uh, <laughs> and and when Robert came along, he was obviously dragged along with us. We couldn't just leave him. Uh, but he, he became quite the gym rat, uh, but didn't really focus on basketball at that time. We we had a like a little family rule that it didn't matter what you did, but you had to focus on something, some sport and activity, because kids were getting to, you know, not be the most disciplined behaviour and things. So we thought, right, we'll let the kids. Gemma went to ballet and gymnastics, and then she found athletic. And Robert played soccer. Then he got they started to get a little bit too tall. Um, but, you know, Heather supported them at absolutely everything they did, but they had to want to do it. And if they committed to something, it wouldn't be, yeah, we'll go along to the gym and if it doesn't work out, I'll, you know, quit halfway through. No, you had to see it through to the end of the year. And I think that was, that was Robert's drive then when he was about 14, that suddenly he thought, I can do this. Um, he, he totally immersed himself in the, in the game. And uh, even, you know, this past little while, we found all these his old uh, basketball cards that he saved. And he would spend all his pocket money on basketball cards and knew every every player's stats and who was good at this and who was good at that. And he would go out with a little basketball goal in the backyard and he would go out there at 8 o'clock at night and bounce a ball around and he would try and dunk the ball. And then it, I made it when it was... Uh, when we moved there and we could increase the height and he took the height up so he would have to jump harder he would would learn to dunk the ball and then he would put it up three inches and start working again so he he was very clear in what he he wanted to achieve Uh, and you know I've always said that the harder you work the luckier you get a couple of breaks and suddenly he's in St. Louis, Missouri and he's got a bucket full of uh, scholarship offers I think there were maybe 18 or 20 colleges at that time started to come courting. Um, so he knew what he wanted. And, uh, you know, getting to college was the first challenge he met. So uh, get, getting, getting to go to, to Illinois, uh, he, could name, he could name the, the, the starting, what the, were called the Flying Illini at that time. <laughs> um, so that, that worked out really well for him. Um, what's it like as a parent when you've had so much success personally in the sport and lived this great life but to then see your your son have the success that he has first at Illinois where he was incredibly beloved and then he gets drafted then he plays his first NBA game 
what's it like yeah. to be on that ride along with him? I think, I think it's absolutely special. I mean, the, the pride that Heather and I are so proud of what he achieved. Having, having some sort of insight into how hard you have to work to get to a level, Robert had to work harder than that. And uh, it was Bill Self, actually, that told him he would do to him what was necessary to get him to the next level. So Robert already had a new clear focus. Um, I don't think, and I'll say respectfully, Coach Kruger uh, wasn't Robert's favourite cup of tea the way he did things. (laughs) But suddenly Bill Self comes along, a lucky break, and off Robert goes. His whole work ethic changed. Um, Back to an absolute focus, uh, working out extra, you know, first in the gym in the morning and last at night. And I think he learned he learned how to develop his skills again. And that was what helped uh, in his next journey toward the NBA. When you get to see that first NBA game, what's the emotion going through your mind when you watch him checking onto the court for the Grizzlies? Yeah, and here he is in the big, big, big time. Yeah, that's, that's lump in the throat stuff. It was a very proud moment for us. I think it was for everyone. I remember, yeah, I think lots of people here, I mean, you, you'll remember the, 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 all those old friends that went over to Memphis during the season. I remember sitting, mm. watching or listening to that game at the time. It was, it, it was surprising in a way for, you know, a sport that's not always that big in the, you know, in the, in the spotlight over here. How many people took great personal pride in that? Yeah. I mean, for the the Dunfermline Rain boys to to put all the money together to come out to Memphis to see a basketball game, um, and they actually we, we had a laugh about it. Um, that the second game was when they played against Kobe Bryant and the uh, the Lakers, so they saw two games, um, and that was quite quite touching. I mean, you get you. What's that like as a parent? The experience because they look after you very well when you're you're a parent to, or a family member in the NBA. Was it was it kind of cool to be in that sort of situation where you know here's your son and he's on the team? Yeah, it's uh, it was really it was really quite uh, quite an honour to stand there and see him. Um, the the funny story was when we actually went to the game, um, we we. We obviously went early with them, uh, and we sat up in the, the half-empty stands as they were going through their warm-up. And then we had arranged to go down to the, the basically the garage under the stadium, and he would uh, take us take us home to his uh, apartment. Well, he's so excited about that that he completely forgot us, and we were left standing in the garage. <laughs> and he had, he had to come back and get us. <laughs> I'm surprised at that point he didn't send his people back, but there you go. It's the difference between <laughs> no. yeah, the guy and the superstars of it. Yeah, he, um, he didn't have his people with him. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, obviously the the tough news January this year. Um, Robert, I was sitting at the NBA game in Paris. The news comes through. You know, I spoke to you the next day. We were all in shock. You know, Robert, mm-hmm. you know, very tragically, we know, and obviously took his took his own life. You were very candid when we spoke, and you said, you know, that he had 
been through a tough patch over the the last few years and you know he's yeah. your son you're your pride and joy you, you've been with him since you know his, his baby steps and before that yeah. how how do you process that kind of news even though yeah. you have know that he the place that he had been in yeah um you know it's it's a tragedy that uh, he was going through a protracted divorce it couldn't get settled um on antidepressant medication, uh, just uh, one of the one of the risks of taking uh, medicines like that is suicidal thoughts and depression, and unfortunately, he succumbed to it. Um, not being in a great place with the the divorce, but uh, he'd found a new partner in Missy and her kids, and had uh, moved in with her, and things were looking up. Um, it, it really turned a corner again. It was just trying to get the divorce closed out. But, uh, you know, he had started, started up a new life. There were a lot of plans made uh, about how he was going to grow. And uh, it was just a tragedy. Um, probably the toughest phone call we've ever taken. Um, you know, you shouldn't bury your children. But uh, that's unfortunately the way it turned out. Uh, but as, as I said to you before, we have set up a, a mental health and wellness fund through the University of Illinois. Uh, to try and get recognition for what uh, kids and young adults and athletes go through in the transition from being, you know, a standout at high school through to a standout in college, and then nothing. If you don't make it to the NBA or make it to Europe, there's nothing. And that is probably one of the biggest gaps that we feel that accelerated some of the, the mental health issues that students have. Our daughter um, also, she went to the University of Missouri on a, a track scholarship and she saw a number of people going through the same thing and they, they made it to the NBA um, and they too have got nothing left. Uh, one of Robert's colleagues at Illinois made it to the NBA also and he's gone through the same depression and um, stuff like that. So it's a, it's a tragedy that there's nothing uh, on an education basis to prepare them for the changes that are going to come undoubtedly. And I think that's some of the things that we want this fund to be used for. Uh, we've had n numerous donations from many, many people, and if I can use this to thank them all if, they're, uh, if they ever get to hear this. But uh, and loads of people, we don't know half of them, have given money to the foundation, and hopefully it will help stop that sort of thing because it is i mean you, you increasingly people are talking about this issue more it's been this illness that i guess people didn't speak about for a long time but you know you, i guess robert's not alone in that here's someone who's had a huge success in his career but was building another very good you know successful career in the insurance industry mm -hmm. and yet finds himself in a predicament from which he can't extract himself and yeah. i guess you almost pick up people like him who's a towering figure in a physical sense, a towering success. Mm -hmm. But it, I guess it, it's that tragedy that not you know, there is no immunity from this. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. We, we, we've talked about it with some of his previous colleagues and friends. There's nothing, nothing to be afraid of by talking to people. And I'm sure we could have talked Robert through it, but it was an impulse. It was done in the spur of the moment. And if you can make people aware that that can happen and to reach out when you get to that situation, 
then that's what I really, really would like to see. I, I've said this to other people. I, I don't recall being as impacted by anyone's death in recent times. And that's not to, to compare it in any way to what you and your family went through. But I knew him for a long time. We were a similar age. It, it really got to me in a way. But I think what I guess was was extraordinary in the days and the week after that was the amount of people who paid tribute to him. You had Pau Gasol, Nick Nurse, Chris mm -hmm. Finch, other players. It, it must, in a small sense, have given you a lot of pride to know that he meant a lot and had made the impact he had with so yeah. many people. Yeah, I mean, the, the outpouring of support and love was incredible. I've got old colleagues back from the 80s. You know, some of the guys you've mentioned here, being in touch with us, sent us a message. Heather's, Heather's actually making a scrapbook for his uh, son, for Robbie, that he'll get when he's older, when the time's right, to show him all the, the love and support and the outpouring uh, that people have given his father after what happened. And so there's a, there's a whole big uh, scrapbook going to be pulled together. I <laughs> think... She's sitting here looking at me, just putting three fingers up. So, <laughs> three three volumes worth of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, when we we chatted the day after, and although obviously the, the tragedy was there, I think the greatest thing that came through from that conversation is the pride that you had in him. And it, you know, in some small way, how much does it help that his was a life that was very, very richly lived? Yeah. It's, it's, I'm so thankful for it. Um, you know, people talking cliches about situations like this, but, you know, it's, it's a horrible thing to see that someone has personal issues that you couldn't help with. Um, he, 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 Heather and I are so proud of what he achieved personally, both through uh, development of his athletic skills and then Laterally, he's, uh, he was in an honour club at State Farm Insurance. He, he, he focused on that and, and tried to be the best insurance agent he could be. Um, so to, to see him continue to work hard, you know, a great work ethic is the thing that makes me most proud. He had a great work ethic. And he was a funny guy as well. Really, <laughs> really, really sense of humour too. Um, yeah, it's, it's some, of, some of Robert's quips could uh, cut you with a knife. Yes. Um, he was a master of the one-liner, and I think at, at one point he and Kieran used to practice it. And You know, uh, one of his other colleagues at Illinois, uh, Lucas Johnson, they used to, um, you know, one-liners all the time. And you knew as soon as you'd said something, he was going to come back at you. And he would just give you a look and a, a smile. Um, but he had a great sense of humour. The fortunate thing is his his career was captured in a wonderful documentary, Make It Rain, um, last year. Yeah. And at least you know, we have him now talking about that, you know, as a, as a kind of keepsake in a sense. But for you, you, you saw a lot of his games. Is there a one game of his that stands out for you? Um, I think it was actually a college game. I was a much bigger fan of the college game than I was of the NBA. But uh, they had a painted hall orange night. I had started to work in Detroit. Uh, 
and I managed to get on a little flight, you know, one of these twin prop nine seaters, and I flew down from Detroit to uh, Champaign uh, to see this game, and they won. Uh, they won a share of the Big Ten that year, and it was probably one of the proudest games I'd ever seen. Uh, there were sixteen and a half thousand screaming fans, and probably sixteen thousand of them were Illinois fans. Uh, wonderful atmosphere, brilliant game, and and the one and the, the icing on the cake for me at that time was when I flew back home the next morning. I'm sitting in the back row of this fifteen seater, and I'm sitting next to Jay Billis. <laughs> So that was quite the conversation as well. How much would you love to see? Because we're always talking about when this next Scottish player is coming through. How much would you love to see another Scottish player? It might even be your grandson Robbie at some point. But I mean, yeah, how much would you like to see another what guy hit it big in the states? It's honestly, there's no reason why there shouldn't be another Scottish player makes it into the NBA. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you why. If you can take the passion and turn it into a drive and a focus. Certainly there are some physical attributes that would help, but there's absolutely no reason why if you have the heart and you have the drive, you will make it. You, there's, you can achieve whatever you set your goals out to. And if, if I can claim some uh, responsibility, I think... I, myself and his mother instilled some of that drive and focus into achieving your goals. Um, and, what a, and what a fantastic career you had out of it and he had out of it. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm blessed. Well, Bobby, it's been tremendous to speak to you. Um, our wishes, our best wishes for you and, and Heather and the family. Um, thanks for coming on and stay safe over there in Houston. I have- I appreciate that and great to talk to you, Mark. Thank you. That's it for this edition of the MVP Cast, brought to you in association with Total Environmental Compliance. Check them out at tecompliance.co.uk. All our previous editions available at mvp247.com or via your preferred podcast provider. Please do leave us a review, preferably a nice one. Another MVP Cast coming very soon. But for me, Mark Woods, stay safe and alert. And bye for now.